today we are going to talk with a sitting dependency judge. Join us today on Fostering the Future. Welcome to the Fostering the Future podcast, a show about all things child welfare, dependency, adoption, and foster care. Here are your hosts, veterans in the world of child welfare, Jack and Kat. We believe that every human has incredible and equal value regardless of what side of the courtroom we sit on. We hope that everyone feels welcome and accepted here on Fostering the Future. Make sure you follow us on Facebook or Instagram as Fostering the Future Podcast, or check us out on our website at fosteringthefuturepodcast.org. This is Kat, and I'm here with Jack. And today we have a special guest, Luke, who is a judge in dependency in the great state of Texas. Welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Luke, let me ask you a very serious question. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? All right. So um, in preparing for this podcast, I've listened to several of um, your prior episodes and I knew that question was coming. Um, Hopefully I don't lose credibility from your listeners. I haven't been to Starbucks in like six years. Wow. Um, And I'm kind of at the point now, I'm at the point now where I just, I prefer coffee, just black with no sugar in it. So I'm, I'm kind of dull in that regard. But if it were a life and death decision, and I had to get something to Starbucks. Um, I would probably get something that my wife got me hooked on years ago, probably a uh, caramel frappuccino if I actually had to get something from Starbucks. And like full disclosure, you probably don't live near a Starbucks, do you? Um, well, where we are, I'm, I'm in Boston County. What I like to tell people, we're basically a hub of a wheel that is 45 minutes from everything. We're 45 minutes from Dallas, Fort Worth, 45 minutes from Waco, 45 minutes from um, Stephenville, from Gatesville, which are the bigger counties. So yeah, we're we're not too, too close to a Starbucks. Yeah, so you're not just driving through there on the way home from dropping your kids off at school in the morning or anything. Right. I mean, I have to say I'm impressed. My dad drinks his coffee black and I don't think he puts sugar in it either. And I just think like, you know, it takes a lot to get to that point where you yeah. can enjoy the coffee without the additives. Yeah, my dad does too. Mine was for, for health reasons. Like years ago, I cut out uh, dairy just for a limited time. And then I got to where I stopped putting sugar in it. And after, you know, like a few weeks, I liked it. So I just, I kept, kept doing it that way. So, Luke, what was your first experience with foster care? Let's see. My first experience with foster care, um, I went to Texas A&M for undergrad, and I was involved in a um, kind of a civic religious organization that we, we took would often take certain trips going and helping people across the state. And every every year around Christmas, they would take these trips called week longs where they would go to like group foster homes. 
around the state. And my first actual experience with foster care was I went on one of those trips to a group foster home, actually in Oklahoma, man, just spent the week with them. That was that was my first experience, probably at the age of 21 maybe 22. And what drove your decision to become an attorney? The funny thing is the thing that drove my decision to become an attorney is not the reason why I continue being an attorney. Um, originally, it was I was convinced that, hey, you know, become an attorney, you can make the big bucks. And then um, about a week into law school, I discovered that that's not the case. But I have always had this like innate desire, I guess, this innate thing inside me for an appreciation for the rules. And I've always been a whole follower. And uh, I really have like just kind of fell in love with the law and like learning about it, like learning what the rules are and, you know, trying to be somebody that helps people with their problems. And that's kind of what continued my drive for wanting to be an attorney. A strong sense of justice. Yes. Yeah. Strong sense of justice. That's very important. I'm married to an extreme rule follower and I always kind of get a kick out of it. Like if we're walking somewhere and it says stay off grass and like nothing drives him crazier than if I take a step off the grass, he is like right down the line. Like a rule is a rule for a reason. And so I get kind of a kick out of it. I appreciate that he is passing that on to my son and my son now has a strong sense of justice. That's how I am. And my wife seems to be kind of like you. She's a rules were made to be bent type person. It can drive her crazy sometimes when I'm so uh, intent on following the rules to a T. Hey, I love her. So. so why did you choose to practice in the area of dependency? I um, was a solo practitioner, so I had my own practice. And uh, in a small county, having your own practice, you usually take any and everything that comes in your door, and then you'll you'll dabble in a lot in the surrounding counties. One of the things that I started with was uh, court appointments in my home county, and then that took me into representing people here in Boston County and other counties next to me. I was on the court appointed list for um, CPS uh, removal cases. Over time, that led to, in my practice, I noticed that one of the things I'm doing is a lot of CPS litigation. I was uh, representing parents uh, in termination cases, uh, representing kids as an attorney ad litem. There's been a situation where more than once um, I was appointed to represent children as an attorney ad litem and CASA for one reason or another uh, withdrew from the case. So I got appointed in the what's called the dual role of an attorney and a guardian ad litem. So basically, I'm working as CASA as well. I've represented, uh, let's see, grandparents and family members who are intervening. Actually, a guest that y'all had a while back, Robert Callahan, he's a uh, he's a good friend of mine. And uh, back when I was an attorney, we were uh, like almost like brothers in arms. And uh, we had uh, we had helped each other often. Like, you know, I've sat for him second chair on trials. He sat for me second chair on many trials. And uh, something he told you all about was something their firm does where they help foster parents who are intervening in CPS cases. And I actually helped his firm with their first case that they had with that. Uh, so I have experience in that. And I have also represented the foster parents who are then later adopting. From the standpoint of an attorney, I've sat in not all, but, but most of the chairs that the that an attorney can sit in. That's kind of my my drive, my my view on CPS is I've been involved in it in a lot of different aspects. And that probably gives you a great perspective sitting as a judge 
to have been in all of those shoes and really have a full understanding of their limitations and where they're coming from. Yeah, and, and that does that does help greatly. So can you tell us how you ended up in the role that you're in now? The judge who was the judge before me, he uh, decided he was going to retire. And uh, I thought about it and realized that everything that uh, this court handles, I do in a daily practice. I thought about it, talked to my wife about it and made the decision to go ahead and run for um, this position and then was elected and then the rest is history. I mean, the way you described it probably is much simpler than it actually went. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the brief, brief version. I could probably talk for hours and hours. I'm about sure. the actual Can you tell us more about what your position entails? Yeah, um, I am the uh, judge of the... Boston County Court at Law. It is one of the two um, trial courts in my county. Um, because we're a smaller county, I have a wide range of jurisdiction here. A bunch of different types of cases, but but uh, for the purpose of this podcast and the conversation with y'all, um, one of the things that that I hear every um, CPS case and adult protective services case in my county. So I have probably about three years experience on sitting on uh, CPS cases. And I also handle adoptions as well. Um, My job as the judge is to hear the disputes. The parties will come before me. Each side will get a chance to make their argument. Then I take those arguments that were made. That would be an argument either from attorneys Um, It would often have witnesses. There may be paper exhibits that'll come before the court. My job is to take all of that evidence, listen to it, sort through it, apply it to the relevant law, and then make a decision based on what the law says I'm supposed to do. One of the things that I'm really interested in is how you make that decision. You have all of these different parties with their varying opinions. You've got evidence and facts and how do you take all of that and put it together and and decide on each, even sometimes the most minute details that you have to rule on up towards some of these larger decisions like uh, reunifications and TPRs and removals? That's probably the hardest part is the actual decision making, um, because I know there is with these these dependency, these CPS cases, there's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of heightened emotion and um, it's hard. Because, you know, judges, we're, we're people too. And, um, you know, those emotions, sometimes they sometimes get to us, but, but I can't let that creep into my decision. Uh, my decision is solely based on the things that are said in the courtroom, on the record, and then whether or not, based on what those things are said, whether or not, if I apply that to the law, should the kid go home, should the parents' rights be terminated, so on and so forth. Something I said that uh, that's interesting, I just said, the things that are said in the courtroom. There's often times that there are things that happen outside of the courtroom that I know nothing about. And if I don't know a thing about it, I can't make a decision based on it. So I can only decide on the, the, the things that come out of the witnesses' mouths. And the paper exhibits that are entered into evidence. Um, And then I apply that to the law. If the law says, based on the facts that I heard, I have to make a decision. I have to make a decision. That can be really challenging. And I'm thinking about sometimes people will say something to the extent of, I can't wait 
to share this with the judge in court. Just wait till the judge hears this, that kind of thing. Can you share a little bit about how you have to make decisions and what matters and what doesn't? And I know you've made an oath to uphold the law. So I know, you know, you have to consider certain factors when you're making your decisions. Uh, And the first caveat that I will get, um, if there's anyone out there listening to this that has that opinion, wait till the judge hears it. Talk to your attorney about it and always listen to your advice of counsel, um, first of all. Second, there's there's things I need to hear. There's things I don't need to hear, which is why it's important that you always talk to your attorney because they're better suited to sort through the things I need to hear and the things I don't need to hear. How do you decide how to rule in any given situation? Well, um, when it comes to CPS litigation, at least here in Texas, there are a bunch of standards that tell me like at every hearing pretty much what the standard is for uh, making a determination. For example, there's hearings that happen and it says, um, unless there's uh, proof of an immediate danger to the child, I have to return the child home. So that, that that's one thing um, that gives me, I have to find immediate danger to the child if I send him home today. On that note, the law is, it's not like 100% clear, but the law is pretty clear on, as to what I'm supposed to do at every hearing. So you have some guidelines. Yes. You and I talked before about how sometimes you have to go back and look at previous case law. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. And uh, something I actually had just said, I said 100%, sometimes 100% of the time, the, the, the statute isn't clear, um, which is why you would need to go back and research that statute and see what appeals courts throughout the state have potentially said about that statute. And uh, there have been times where um, I've had, not necessarily in a CPS case, it was in a different case where I'm looking for just for some opinion on some statute that I'm looking up. And I had to go back to a case from like the 1940s to, to find something that was relevant because that case has not been overturned it's still good law not often do you have that happen but um, it does happen the wild thing about that is our world was so different that it's hard to believe that that the law can sustain that like my parents weren't even born. Right. Mine. Yeah, that's nuts. That's yeah, that seems like so long ago. Uh-huh. Can you tell us what is the best part about being a judge independently? I do want to say from my standpoint um, as a judge that sits on CPS cases, it is really rewarding um, at the end. Um, you know, you've been going for a year and you see these parents that have gone through, you know, so much. And, you know, at, at the end of a year, it is really rewarding seeing them change and then get their kids back. Now, that's something that uh, to me kind of makes it like, you know, hey, this whole this whole process is worth it because because one of the standards we're always looking at, and I think it's going to be the same. It might not be the same verbiage, but I think it's the same across the country. One of the things we're looking at is the best interest of the child. So um, what we're looking at is something that's that's the best for the kids. And, and sometimes best for the kids is termination. Sometimes best for the kids is going home to their parents. And it's, I mean, it's very rewarding to see uh, parents that, that have realized there's a problem that have changed and that have learned from that change and have done what they needed to do to get their kids back. When you see a reunification and when you've seen someone make real change in their life, change their behaviors, put an end to those cycles of generational abuse and neglect. There is nothing like seeing that change happen in front of you and then getting to see that kid go back to the parent. That is the 
the best days. Oh yeah, definitely. We don't celebrate how much humanity there is in biological parents and how wonderful it is when kids can go home. Right. I do really, I, I really love adoptions because that's the one type of case where um, I can make a decision and everybody in the courtroom is happy. Because if you look at it, whatever decision I made, half the people in the courtroom are going to be mad. Yeah. So yeah. I like adoptions because everybody's happy. That's a good day. I know all I was saying was they come happy, they leave happy. So it's just a win-win. Can you tell us about the hardest part? of being a judge or about your hardest day without going into specifics the ethical laws prevent me from like talking about pending cases talking about you know potential decisions i've made why i made them some of the hardest things that i have to do a decision that i have to make that i know the law says i have to make this decision but me as a person, I don't like the decision. Yeah, that's that's the hardest thing where, you know, I have to make a decision where it's 100 percent clear. I know the law says I've got to make this decision. But me personally, I don't like it and I don't want to do it. And that's that's hard. And I've had to do that. I haven't had to do that a lot, but I've had to do that at least at least four times that I can think of. And the first time I did it, it was gut wrenching. It was it was gut wrenching because I can talk about this uh, because everything has been resolved. It was gut wrenching because it involved a two week old child. But um, everything, everything in that case has been resolved since then. It all worked out fine. So yeah, because your personal integrity is at stake, but also a two week old baby. Right. That goes back to something that you mentioned when I was sworn in. I took an oath to uphold the laws of the United States and of this state. And, you know, if, if it's 100% clear to me that the law says I got to do it, I got to do it. Oftentimes, I'm either talking to like a biological parent or a foster parent who isn't happy with how a judge ruled in some situation. And oftentimes I understand that this doesn't seem like the right thing, whether it's what, you know, whoever it's benefiting or not benefiting. But when, when you see the information that the judge has, they just have to do it. Right. And from, from sitting in my chair, I, I understand how the public, how attorneys, how people may be offended, maybe upset uh, based on a decision. But, but the hardest part is knowing that I might make somebody mad. Part of the ethics that I'm bound by is I can't let public perception, I can't let what I think might happen drive my decisions. So I can't even consider that. I, it's, it's there, you know, because we're all human. It's there. I think about it, but I can't let it drive my opinions. On the flip side of that, if something bad does happen, ethically, I don't have even an opportunity to speak about what happened in the courtroom. Essentially, I'm just, I'm silent. I stay silent and I don't get to fight back. I've recently been in a situation where I wasn't allowed to speak to what had happened in a certain situation. It was incredibly frustrating. So for that to have been on a larger scale, I can't really imagine. Yeah. And, and I haven't had something like that happen yet. And, you know, knock on wood, I never do. But uh, if I ever am put in that situation, I've got to just shut my mouth and not say anything. <laughs> I think that's what any good PR rep would tell you to do. <laughs> I heard you mention something about a year, like the case plan uh, taking a year. And that's not something we see often over here in Florida. I'm always trying to learn about ways that we can help these case plans stay under a year so that the children aren't waiting four or five, six years for permanency. Can you give us some, some knowledge about how you guys are able to keep 
these cases, I know obviously there are situations where it goes over a year, but it's my understanding that in Texas, that this is not quite the problem it is over here. What is it that you guys are doing differently to make sure that children aren't in foster care for four or five, six years before decisions are made? You kind of hit the nail on the head. You said in Texas, um, it's it's by design in the Texas Family Code. So it's, it's codified statute. With certain exceptions, a um, CPS termination case has to be resolved. And the wording of the statute is um, a little convoluted to where basically it comes out to a little over a year, a year and a couple of days from the date that the judge signs the initial removal order. So so by law, it's got to be resolved in a year. And then there can be some extensions to where it could technically be extended up to in the strangest scenario up to two years, but that hardly ever happens uh, prior to termination. Uh, the statutes in the fam- Texas Family Code design it to where we want to try and have some kind of permanency, whether that's the parents' rights are terminated, the kid was sent home, um, CPS is the permanent managing conservator, grandparents is the permanent managing conservator, some kind of permanency for these kids within a year. We don't see much of that. Um, I I think it's more common for the year point to be when parents start their case plans for the norm. I mean, there are always parents who start right from the get-go, but in, in general, I'm seeing most of them wait six to 12 months before you know, getting going. So I'm, I, I'm from Texas and worked as a case manager there for two years. And then I worked in other roles as well. And that was the biggest shock when I came to Florida was that there were no real time frames. Kids were just in care for like three years. Yeah. The crazy thing to me about the time frame, you got to remember one year. That's one eighteenth of this kid's life at home. I went to a training once under a judge who had come in from, I believe it was Jacksonville. He talked about, I think he called it chronography, the study of time. Because a child's life, because they have had less time that they have been alive, each minute of their day is so much bigger than a minute in our day. For them, right. a year is this big, huge thing where to us, it seems to fly by. And that due to that, right. it has such... Um, harmful consequences to the child's mental health to be in limbo for so long, to be in that like fight or flight. They don't know what's going on. They don't know where they're going to be tomorrow. They don't know when they're going to be home and they don't know what home is. So what he did and he had uh, dropped the time to completion down in his uh, circuit considerably by uh, putting certain things into place. One of the things that he had started in his courtroom was that every hearing he would say the amount of days that the child was in care verbally for everyone in the courtroom to hear, or he would have the case manager say the number of days the child has been in care. And that was just kind of his way of emphasizing, this is how many days, how can we make it the least amount of days that we're adding to this? And I, I thought that was a pretty creative way to point out the time frame that they were looking at. Yeah, didn't he do other things too? The fingerprint checks in the courtroom, right? The, the drug tests in the courtroom, and tried to eliminate all those typical wait times. Yeah, because often, at least over here, often you'll go to court and they'll be like, "Okay, we're all ready for reunification, but we still have to wait on fingerprints." So he created an extra room in the courthouse for parents to walk over. Like, okay, you know, we're going to go into recess. The parent will go over and do the fingerprints 
come back and they'll reunify the kids, which, you know, often here results in like another month to three months before reunification because you're waiting on those fingerprints. He did a number of things where they could just do it in the courtroom if it wasn't done yet so that there were no excuses. Yeah, that's really interesting. So are there rules about who you are allowed to interact with? Yes. A crazy Latin phrase called ex parte. I can't have an ex parte communication. And what that means in English is I can't talk to one side of the case or essentially one attorney or one party or whatever without everybody being present. I can't talk to a party that's represented unless I'm talking to their, the public about the cases that go on in my courtroom. So yes, I'm severely limited on, on whom I can talk to and when. What have you seen as the biggest challenges in these interactions where you have to make sure everyone is present to have a conversation. There's actually a time uh, right at the beginning, like within, I think, the first month of me taking office, I had received an email from a parent in a CPS case who had wanted to like get something out from their attorney, but the attorney never got anything out. So I had to follow the appropriate standards for that. I had to not read it. I had to send it to my coordinator. She prints it out comes up with the response that I send to the attorney and that person saying, unfortunately, I can't have an ex parte communication. It happens. It's difficult because I understand that these parents want me to hear stuff, but I can't. Yeah. And that's got to be stressful to like know that there might be emails in your inbox that you can't open and to be right. that, that cautious. Yeah, it's only happened that that one time. And, and that's a long case that's over and done with the kids. Eventually, at the end, we're sent home to live with the parents and and I don't necessarily fault the mother for doing that. And on top of that, when I was running for election, I campaigned my classroom, my phone number and email address across the county. So anybody that wants it had it. The area you live, like I would imagine that you see people at the grocery store. Yeah. And on that note, there have been times where there have been multiple people that have come before me in cases like somebody like, hey, you know, I was on this board with this person who's a party to the case. It's not really a ground for recusal, but uh, I want to let everybody know just in case you have any issues. Uh, Because when I say grounds for refusal, let me speak more on that. There is a um, statute by design. A judge can't sit on a case to where there would be any appearance of bias or prejudice. So if there's an appearance of bias or prejudice, somebody makes a motion and it gets that judge removed from the case. So for example, if like, let's say my in-laws who live uh, here in Bosque County say they were sued for some reason, I wouldn't be able to hear that case. There have been instances where I've had people that I represented on something completely unrelated from the case that's before them, which isn't really a ground for recusal, but I let everybody know just in case if anybody wants me off the case, they can ask. There's times where it's somebody that lives in the same community as me uh, in the town that I know, but I don't really know, like, say, was my kid's little league coach or something (laughs) like that? That hasn't happened yet, but just for example. So it it makes it really more difficult for being able to interact with people than it would be if, say, I lived in like Houston or Dallas. Um, And on that note, because of that, I took some advice from somebody when I first became a judge and I kind of ghosted everyone on on social media because, you know, the advice was, hey, you can't really be Facebook friends with the attorneys practicing in your court. You can't really be Facebook friends with people that may come before you. You can't be Facebook friends. You shouldn't be Facebook friends with other attorneys. 
attorneys. You can't like it. So basically my Facebook page went next to nothing. And I feel bad about that, but it's just, it feels like it's one of those things that I just, I have to do. Yeah. I can see how that could go so tremendously wrong because the internet is forever. (laughs) (laughs) What do you think are some basic things that the other partners can do to work better with judges? For parents and foster parents and people that are represented, my advice would probably be listen to your attorney. You hired them or they were appointed for a reason. Let them handle their job. Yeah, probably the the first one would be listen to your attorney. Know that I can't just go and talk to whomever I want. Uh, The only thing that I get to base my decision off of is things that are entered into evidence in court. Those are probably be the two main main factors because most people that don't interact in the courtroom very often don't realize that. I will say that I haven't heard said on your uh, podcast yet to someone that's never been in a courtroom before, if you're going to show up and be in a courtroom for a CPS or a dependency case, please go in with the understanding that this is not Perry Mason. This is not Matlock. This is not NBC. <laughs> it's a lot slower than that and it's a lot more dull don't go in expecting you know legal drama because you're not going to get it i mean i don't know i've definitely seen my share of drama over you need to come have a field trip up here luke maybe i'm in the wrong state (laughs) (laughs) i mean we we gotta bring popcorn over here it's so dramatic sometimes we are the home of the florida man there are times when when there's some drama in the courtroom it's more rare than it is commonplace. Can you give us a word to describe a foster care? Hey, unpredictable. Just because you can plan for what's going to happen, but you never know what's going to happen. My wife and I did adopt our oldest daughter from the foster system. So I was at one point in time a, li- a licensed foster care uh, home. So I understand what foster parents are going through. You had plan, but you never really know what exactly is going to happen. I, and I'm living that literally right now. <laughs> We're sitting in amongst Christmas presents that may may or may not be leaving my house today or I don't know. And to to, to go further on that unpredictable, if someone's a a foster care placement for a child whose case is pending, parents' rights has been terminated, um, at any point in time, any court hearing, the judge can return those kids to the parent. So you you don't know if you're still going to have this child in your home or if the child's going to go back to their parents. I used to say very early on, on any given day in court, any thing can happen. You think that right. they're going to file for TPR and all of a sudden they're scheduling the transition to reunification or the opposite. You know, you think you're getting ready to get these kids back with their family and they're talking about scheduling a TPR trial. How do you see the role of judges in child welfare? Judges are important for the main reason that, like I said earlier, it is very heightened emotionally. Judges, we're, we're supposed to be disconnected from that. I think our role is very important because we can look at it with an unbiased mind and we can sort through all the the drama that may come up uh, to be able to to hopefully achieve a result that is warranted under the law. Well, we definitely need that in child welfare. And I, I do think that of all the players in child welfare, the judge is the person that is the most mysterious. Yes. You know, <laughs> I mean, because of the ex parte and also because it's they're the ones making the final call and there are so many emotions involved and people don't 
they often don't know how to predict what the judge will do. And which is one reason I'm so glad you're here today so that people can hopefully understand a little better what happens and how you make your decisions and what's relevant and what's not. And uh, maybe like exhale a little bit when they're, you know, which is hard in foster care, (laughs) but, you know, just understand a little bit better. I mentioned earlier all the chairs that I had, had sat in as an attorney. And I think of all the chairs that I had sat in in um, CPS and dependency cases, this is probably the most difficult one. The information that I have is limited. I don't know any of the uh, involved parties. I don't really know what's going on. All I know is what's given to me. I can't ask questions. I can't I can't ask for more information. It's just if you give it to me, if I don't get it, then I don't hear it. I didn't know that. In Texas, the only, the only time we can really ask questions is in certain kinds of small claims court. Think of like the people's court, stuff like that. That's the only time we're permitted to ask questions. Gosh, that seems like dangerous and limiting, especially when you're dealing with child welfare. Yeah, it, it is a little bit, but it helps because, you know, here in Texas and should be across the nation, uh, parents are guaranteed a right to an attorney. They have a licensed attorney with them to, that knows the ins and outs and knows that the judge can't ask questions and knows that the judge is, is bound by whatever evidence that he or she gets in the courtroom. That's a great thing is that uh, parents don't have to go it alone. What would surprise most people to learn about your role as a judge? Okay, so on, on TV, you see um, like legal dramas, the judge is always wearing a robe and very stoic and stern-faced. Remember, we're, we're people too. Uh, we have emotions, we have feelings, we have a sense of humor. Uh, some of us do really. And uh, there, there's things that happen that somebody will say something and everybody in the courtroom will laugh. And that's fine with me because it's like, you know, I'm inside laughing too. The thing is, we're people too. We have feelings, we have emotions, we have senses of humor, we have opinions. That's probably the one thing to remember. It's a person with feelings and emotions just like you. So I would imagine as a judge, you're sitting in the courtroom and hearing all of the things that you're also one of the parties involved that are going to experience secondary trauma from hearing all of the things that go on in these homes. What is your self-care routine to combat compassion fatigue from hearing all this? Well, um, one good thing is I am, as I mentioned earlier, married. I can't publicly talk about the things that go on uh, in my courtroom. That's that's the, the verbiage publicly. I, I talk to my wife about a lot of like the stuff that I'm dealing with um, in the courtroom. The, uh, one of the other judges here, I'll talk to him and I'll talk to my coordinator about uh, some things. So the people that are involved that are also like either know that I'm bound by these rules or that are bound by these rules as well. Um, I'll talk to them. That way I know it remains that confidentiality secret. And there's at least people that I can bounce my um, emotions off of my, my feelings. And that way I'm not just, you know, left alone in a vacuum. It's necessary because I'm, you know, sometimes we hear really awful stuff and I know you do too. What do you think the community can do to prevent more kids from coming into care? I know the federal government has taken steps to, to try and uh, prevent kids going into foster care. Um, that's now trickled down to most of the states. It made its way into Texas statutes just recently. And we've, uh, we've changed our statutes to where now there's this uh, this stopgap to, to make sure that the kids that are in foster care are the kids that actually need to be in foster care. And uh, just to keep an eye open, I mean, be, be human, take an interest in other people's lives and you think somebody needs help, ask. There's such a culture in our country right now to like mind your own business. Right. And I think we need 
to mind each other's business a little more for the sake of helping people who are afraid to ask for help or not ready to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Did you guys watch the 2020 with about the Turpin kids? Oh my gosh. People knew there were a million kids in that house that never came outside and everybody was like, gosh, that's weird. Yeah. And everybody just kind of minded their own business. And we kind of do that. People like, you know, no one actually approaches the person to ask if they needed help or if there's anything going on or not doing it in a, in a mean, you know, interrogating, you know, accusatory way but doing it in like, you know, a kind, I'm trying to be a fellow, you know, member of the community and help you kind of way. I've talked to a lot of um, like biological parents who they were just like afraid to tell someone, but they wanted help before it became like a forced situation when their children were removed. And we could just be more uh, involved in each other than mm-hmm. and, and resol- help resolve each other's problems before they become big like that. I think that's huge. Outside of what you're already doing as a judge, in your circuit, what are some goals that you have to make positive change in your community? My wife and I are involved in some things more, more mostly through my wife than me, because I really feel like I need to publicly take kind of a backseat. But we're involved in a bunch of things in the community. Uh, my wife is actually on our city council. We have kind of made it a, a fun habit to buy and restore homes in our community. We're on uh, working on our second slash third one right now so that's kind of been a fun thing that we've done and from that standpoint that's very therapeutic it's like nothing nothing's more more therapeutic and fun than the demolition i guess that goes back to that self-care question too yeah yeah luke thank you so much for being with us today it was it was a fun experience yeah thank you so much we really appreciate it you are more than welcome i was happy to do it thank you so much for joining us today make sure you subscribe and follow us on social We hope that you join us again next time and keep on fostering the future.